We'll start with a prayer for the catechumens. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. Almighty and everlasting God, who dost continually enrich thy church with a new offspring, increase the faith and understanding of our catechumens, that they, being born again in the water of baptism, may be numbered among the sons of thine adoption, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. I want to start by showing you this video. And I'll have to explain what it is, but, but just get a, a sense of it. All these people waiting in line. This is in St. Petersburg, Russia. All these people waited in line. It was the line stretched at one point for five kilometers. Some people stood for over 24 hours in line. Best <laughs> Any other guesses? Hmm? Food, food. Some church was opening. Close. Okay, so this line goes on, and just down the street, you'll see people singing and everything else. But um, over four hundred thousand people. Um, and it was to see uh, a relic. The belt of the Theotokos normally is at. Um, Vatopedi Monastery on Mount Athos. Um, it's been there, the final pieces were kind of assembled there uh, in 1551. It has not left Vatopedi Monastery since then, except for this one trip to Russia in 2011. While it was there, 400,000 people waited in line to venerate it. Um, some, uh, the line was at one time five kilometers, um, and uh, some people stood outside, and you can see it's not warm for 24 hours to be in line to venerate the belt of the Theotokos. It is said to be a belt that, that the Virgin Mary actually wore. Um, Where's the monastery? On Mount Athos. This was a monastery in um, St. Petersburg. But the monastery in, in Mount Athos is on the east coast. You know, there's 20 monasteries on Mount Athos. Um, I actually missed seeing the belt of the Theotokos by about an hour. Um, we were supposed to. We were staying at the monastery just south of there, called Pontecrater, and we were supposed to take a boat ride because everything on Mount Athos should go by boat. Uh, we were supposed to take a boat ride up to Vatapeti, which is one up the coast, and they said no, the water's too rough, so we're not going. So three of us decided we were going to hike to Karyes, which is in the center of Mount Athos. And so off we went, and about an hour after we left, they said, okay, the water's good, let's all go. Oh. And everybody else went to go see the belt of the Theotokos. Um, so they did think to bring back um, a piece of cloth, which is, you know, they take a piece of cloth and they touch it to the relic, and then you can give that to somebody. Um, supposed to be good for um, women with fertility issues. So there's a prayer that goes along with it and, and, and the, the relic. So let's watch Steve. Um, today's Steve episode is going to be um, Be the Bee number 80. Those of you keeping track at home. <coughs> Nothing's showing up on there, is it? 
home. I have to reset it. I have to set the display. <coughs> I have to do that. That's the Apple stuff. Displays. Yes. Okay, there we go. Okay, so. Come on. Come on. Began to be persecuted. As people began to accept death rather than deny the Lord, 
Christians began gathering the remains of the martyrs. In fact, early Christians used to celebrate the divine liturgy on the very graves of those martyrs. You've probably heard about how early Christians used to meet in the catacombs, in underground tunnels where the dead were buried, under cities like Rome. This wasn't simply to hide from the persecution they were enduring. It was because the people who were buried in the catacombs were still members of the church. So Christians celebrated the liturgy and received Holy Communion over the graves of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Our faith ultimately rests on the belief that Christ has defeated death and that we have no reason to fear death anymore. And the martyrs are the greatest witnesses of that. Not simply because they didn't fear death, but because they are still alive in Christ. Every compline, which is the evening service we pray after dinner and before bed, we proclaim that the church is adorned by the blood of the martyrs, like the royal purple robe of a king. To this day, when new church buildings are consecrated, the relics of martyrs are placed in the altar. So that even now, just like in the catacombs, every liturgy is grounded on the truth of the resurrection and sanctification of all. We honor relics because Christ is risen. We honor relics because the saints are sanctified in both body and soul. Because not even death can stop the bodies of the saints from being the living temples of the Holy Spirit. When we honor relics, when we kiss them and use them as part of our prayer, we aren't simply remembering people who died long ago. We're communing with people who remain alive in Christ. We aren't remembering the past, but we're experiencing in the present a taste of God's kingdom and the reality of Christ's triumph over death. And we see that especially in situations that are hard to understand and to explain. For instance, I've been blessed to venerate the relics of St. Demetrius, the martyr, in Thessaloniki. His relics stream this incredibly fragrant myrrh. I've been blessed to venerate the hand of St. Mary Magdalene on Mount Athos, which somehow <clears throat> remains warm, like a living hand. I've been blessed to venerate a tiny relic of St. Emilianos, which radiates this smell that is so powerful and so otherworldly, so beyond anything I've ever smelled before that the first time I encountered it, it literally almost knocked me out. This all seems supernatural in a world that still seems under the grip of sin and death, but it's all perfectly natural if we remember that death has been defeated, that Christ is risen. Here at the OCA's chapel, I've been blessed to venerate the relics of amazing saints, like St. Seraphim of Sarah, as well as the relics of saints who were crucial to the growth of the church in America, like St. Herman of Alaska, St. Innocent, and St. Raphael of Brooklyn, which is super cool because I live in Brooklyn. Relics are an incredible part of the inheritance we receive in our union with Christ. They're a beautiful way we receive God's grace and a living reminder that nothing is powerful enough to overcome God's love, not even death. So let's be the bee and venerate the relics of the saints who are alive in Christ. Be the bee and live orthodoxy. Remember to like and subscribe and share. We'll see you all next week. Mm. Didn't know, which I guess we got three. We have several on the altar. Yeah, I want to talk about that.
You want oh, to I'll, I'll already yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, Rachel gives me the inside. Uh, <laughs> others like, you know, they're really fun. <laughs> I'll see. I never heard about Those. Mary Magdalene's hands still being warm. I had not heard that one either before the video. I have to look into that one. Yeah. Um, okay. So. There we go. All right. So what are relics? Bits and pieces of. The same there, there's three, we recognize in the church three classes of relics. The first class of relics is basically body parts. Um, you know, here you'll see we do have relics on the altar and they're like little chips of bone or something like that. So, you know, when we think relics here in the United States, we think little chips of bone. Um, so it kind of shocked me when I was on Mount Athos. And they're like, are all the tourists gone? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> and they wheel out all the relics from, from that monastery, and one of them is a silver case about this long. And they open it up, and here's an arm inside. Actually, an arm inside. And uh, they're like, this is the left arm of St. John Chrysostom. The whole left arm. He's <laughs> the forearm. Um, so the relics can be a little chip of bone or it can be, um, yeah, the whole thing. So the second class of relics would be something worn or used by the saints. So for example, we were talking about the belt of the Theotokos, an article of clothing that she wore. Okay. Um, and then the third class of relic would be something that has been touched to a first or second class relic. So, like I mentioned, they give you a piece of cloth that's been touched to the belt of the Theotokos. That's considered a third-class relic. Okay. Um, all the altars in uh, Orthodox churches, um, if, if it's a consecrated church, have first-class relics within them. Some piece of a saint or more. Um, we have also, we also have several... Uh, relics on the altar. Um, but there's also uh, within the, the antimens, which um, let's see. Y'all know what the antimens is? The antimens is a piece of cloth. And, and the name means, it's called antimension. Is it a piece of cloth that makes the altar the altar? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And this means, in Greek, this is in the place of the table. So when you didn't have a fixed altar, um, you would have an antimension, and it's a piece of cloth, and on it is depicted um, the, the crowd. No, it's the tomb of Christ. Um, and then somewhere down here will be the bishop's signature. And sewn somewhere into the intimates, usually in a pocket on the back, is a relic of the saint. Okay. Um, used to be that, that if you had a consecrated altar, you didn't need one of these, but basically now all Orthodox churches have this. What this signifies is the possession of this intimates is the permission from the bishop to celebrate liturgy. Remember that all the, 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 the ability of a priest to celebrate Eucharist, to celebrate liturgy, is delegated from the bishop, right? So this is his permission for that priest to celebrate liturgy, okay? Um, 
There was a story about St. Demetrius a few years ago. Um, they were rather rowdy. And, um, as they can be. And they got a new priest. His name was Father Bob. I'm sure you remember Father Bob. He was very good to us. He let us stay there while we were between homes as a church. Father Bob walked into his first uh, parish council meeting and he said, before we get started, let me make sure we all understand each other. He says, um, one, I'm retired from the Air Force and I'm retired from LTV. I don't need your money. Second, um, I found out that the only thing that makes this church a church is the fact that there's the antimons on the altar. <coughs> the church itself has never been consecrated. He says, you people act up once, just once. I'll fold up the animals, take them with me, instruct all the area clergy not to serve here, and this won't be a church anymore. He said, now that we understand each other, let's get started. <laughs> For two years, wow. they did what they were told. Um, so, um, so, the first, um, kind of the first thing they mentioned was a quote from St. Justin Popovich says, in the God-man, the Lord Christ and his body, all, manner, all matter has been set on a path toward Christ, the path of deification, transfiguration, sanctification, resurrection, and ascent to an eternal glory surpassing that of the cherubim. Do we believe matter is bad? No. No. There were those in the early church who did. There were... Um, they, they said, well, spirit is good, matter is bad, and so they tried to deny material things and, and this, that, and the other. But, you know, God made the world, and God said it is good. Okay, matter is God's creation, therefore it can't be bad, right, um, in and of itself. So, um, Christ then redeeming the world as not just us but also the creation itself. So um, not just humanity but all matter now is on this path toward Christ. So that you know at the end time then everything is glorified. Um, when Christ uh, appeared after his resurrection was he just a spirit? No. No. Oh, he told he told Andrew, uh, or told, told Thomas, put your hand in, in my wounds. You know, I'm real. Um, when we talk about the resurrection for us, are we talking about just resurrection in spirit? No. <clears throat> We're talking about a bodily resurrection. So um, this is one of the reasons why... We uh, treat our bodies with respect even after death. Um, it ties in with you know how we treat the relics of the saints. Uh, our bodies don't cease to be temples of the Holy Spirit just because we're not alive anymore. <coughs> At least bodily, we're still alive in Christ. So for that reason, we treat the body um, with respect because it will be part of the resurrection. Now, if somebody gets mangled in a tree... You know, does that mean they're not going to be resurrected? No, of course not. God can do all kinds, you know, you can do anything he wants. Um, uh, what, and uh, 
this one woman asked a uh, New Testament professor at, at my seminary. She said, um, in the Bible it says, there will be great wailing and gnashing of teeth. But what if we have no teeth? <laughs> well, he looks at her and says, Adam, teeth will be provided. <laughs> so, you know, God, God will glorify all things. Um, that, in fact, that gets into the transfiguration. You know, Jesus wasn't transfigured into spirit. He was transfigured into his perfect form. Uh, glorified humanity. Uh, so, uh, the next thing he mentions is Acts 19. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Here's a handkerchief. St. Paul had this. Well, have we heard people try to abuse this? Pardon? Have we heard people try to abuse this? What was the guy's name in Dallas? Bob Tilton. Oh, yeah. Bob, Robert Tilton used to send out, you know, prayer claws, and he'd touch them to his sweaty brow or something, I think, personally. And, and yeah, and you were supposed to be healed as long as you sent in enough money. I was at a 7-Eleven in Dallas, and I walked in, and he was standing at the counter across from me. Did you touch the hem of his robe? <laughs> big black limousine out there, and he bought a, two or three Cokes or something. When he opened the door, the limousine was full of girls. Have you ever noticed almost the, the, it's almost a requirement for any new cult that the leader is polygamous? That's why they do it. The Mormons, the, you know, the Muslims. Oh uh, yeah, we're uh, yeah we're gonna be polygamous. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, the one Bob Tilton story I heard was uh, there was a bishop over in the old country, and you know he had that big Word of Life Center there at I thirty five and and six thirty five, and uh, anyway they're driving past Bishop sees this place it's got a big stained you know stained glass and cross on the front. Oh, what church, what saint is that church dedicated to? <laughs> well, St. Bob. St. Bob. Okay. But, um, I thought this one was interesting because I, I, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. That's Acts chapter 5. He wouldn't think the shadow. We think shadow is darkness, right? But the shadow of someone really falling on them, and they were healed. Strong medicine. Strong medicine, indeed. And they didn't have to spend it, send in the right amount of money, right? <laughs> uh, unless the shadow had like a sign saying we're sending it. <laughs> now, this is actually one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Um, 
And it appears in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. I know what Synoptic means. Um, we're talking Synoptic Gospels. We're talking Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, and then there's John. John is separate. But these are the Synoptic Gospels. What's a synopsis? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So why do we call these the Synoptic Gospels? Because they pretty much go over all of Jesus' life from the beginning to the end. Not just that. They all seem to have a common source. Mm. Completely different from John. Um, some have called the source Q, for example. And that maybe they all three drew from a common source theorized to be called Q. Okay, they all seem to be taken from or modeled on a document of stories of Jesus' life, right? Because there's so many commonalities and so many similarities. There are stories that appear in all three. There are stories that appear in two out of the three. You know, very rarely is the story only in one of them. But they are similar in in content, um, so similar that it, it appears that they all drew on some other source. Now, each had their own purpose. For example, Matthew was specifically written, it appears, to the Jews. You know, and because it really talks about things that are Jewish and the things that would be important to a Jew of that time. Whereas Luke, Luke was written for the Gentiles. He kind of ignores the Jewish stuff and says, no, look, it's Gentiles. This is what, right? Mark is the shortest of the three. Right, but they all seem to, if somebody says the synoptic gospels, they're talking about these first three gospels because they all seem to draw on a single source. They all share a synopsis. Okay. So this story is in all three of the synoptic gospels, and this is the version from Luke. <clears throat> now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, being Jesus. And immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, the throng, multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw this, that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Where faith has made you well. So there's two concepts we talk about in this gospel story. There's one other story he mentioned real quick, and I, I, I want to read it before I kind of get into these two concepts. One's from uh, the last one's from the second book of Kings. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders, and they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, 
he revived and stood on his feet. Okay. So there's two concepts going on here that I want to emphasize. One is, and basically how do relics work? Right? I mean, what makes a relic be able to heal someone? Right? First is, of course, faith. You know, I can put two pieces of bone out here. Say these are bones, and you'd be like, "Okay." <laughs> I could put two pieces of bone out here and say these are the relics of Saint Peter and Saint Paul. <clears throat> Suddenly, that changes things, doesn't it? So, what changes is our faith. Our faith that that um, you know those are what they say. You know, those are what that what we represent them to be. Obviously, you know. We all know during medieval times there was a large market in fake relics. <laughs> you know, you couldn't buy a finger of Jesus unless you bought the whole set of ten. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? So, you know, relics are, are they're, they're hard to trace unless, you know, but but the church has kept track of, of some of these and, and, you know, the ones that we, we know of and, uh, and said, no, we know that these are relics. Um, in the, we had a strange looking cross at the chapel in our seminary. It was silver, but in, in the middle there was something, it was hard to tell what it was. Well, in the middle was a relic of the true cross. So it was a small reliquary. But you can't really make out, you know, it doesn't look like a piece of wood. But as a relic of the true cross. Um, when some of our seminarians went to visit Milan, um, the cardinal at the time, as a, as a going away present, um, gave them a relic of St. Ambrose, Milan, to bring back to the seminary. Um, so, you know, some people are associated with places like Ambrose, associated with Milan. So, you know, they know that that's him um, because they've been uh, guardians of it for so long. So the other thing that is uh, let's just put it as power because that's the word Jesus used in the gospel power what is, it? What is this power? When Jesus says, I felt power going forth from me, what was that power? Well, people have asked that for a long time. And there was a monk in the um, 300th century. And his name was Gregory Palamas. And there was a, a, a phenomenon at the time um, known as hesychasm. There was a practice of monks where they would go into a dark chamber and they would pray um, long periods of time and they would come out and they would claim to have seen light. Surrounded in darkness, they claimed to see light. So the question was, what was this light? And 
Gregory Palamas's answer was that this is the uncreated light. They're actually seeing the energies of God. Where, now where in the Bible have we seen the energies of God showing forth as light? In the transfiguration. In the transfiguration. Where else? Old Testament. Oh, uh, uh, Moses, Moses got the law. Yeah, Mo yeah Moses got the law. And remember, he had to cover his face because it was shining so brightly. Also, when Jesus went up and talked with, was it Moses and Elijah? That was the transfiguration. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So, you know, we always portray saints as having, you can see here, she's got a halo. He hasn't, he has a special halo. Jesus always has a special halo. Right? Because his says, Yeah. I'm trying to see what the order. I'm trying to see what the letters, the order of the letters, and um, oh, okay. So it says, "Oh, on." In Greek, "Oh, on," or "Oh." You know what that means? I am. Not quite. It means the existing. But it's, I mean, that's really the essence of it. Who in the universe can say, I am? Only God. Only God. I am. <laughs> <laughs> you were. <laughs> <laughs> You know, the, the old bathroom stall graffiti. God is dead, Nietzsche. Nietzsche is dead, God. <laughs> so, so some of the, um, two of the, the things he mentioned, we've already talked about the belt of the Theotokos. The other was the burial shroud of Christ. Where is that? Turin. Turin. It's pretty much been authenticated as being impressions on it are from a human face. Right. And it's said to be the burial shroud of Christ. Um, we talked about, uh, they used to celebrate liturgy on, on the graves of the saints, on the, on the tombs, in the catacombs. Um, and that's why our practice of putting the relics in the altar and the antimons um, comes from. Here we have, and I forgot to get all of them, we have St. Blaise, who ironically is a patron saint of throats. St. <laughs> <clears throat> Vincent, uh, the protodeacon. Uh, 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 St. Uh, Raphael, 
of Brooklyn, he mentioned. Uh, St. Peter, and part of the chains of St. Peter, in which he was, he was held. Um, so I'll t tell you a couple quick stories about some of the relics I have been blessed to, to venerate. Um, we were in, in uh, Istanbul at the Fanar, which is the headquarters of the Patriarchate, Ecumenical Patriarchate, and there was a piece of round, it was a black stone pillar. And it was about this tall. And there was a chunk missing out of it. Like an eye bolt had been ripped out of it. And it was in the church. It was in a place of importance. We're like, what's that? And I said, well, that's a third of the column to which Christ was chained when he was flogged. And that piece that's missing is where an eye bolt was. Um, and that's the, the eye bolt through which they ran the chains. Um, that was impressive. Because you could put up, go and basically put your whole hand on it. Um, we were driving to Istanbul on the bus. And we were in a... a it was about time for a bathroom break, whatever. And they said, uh, okay, we're going to pull over here. And there was this modern-looking church. And we said, why are we stopping here? And they said, well, we're going to go to the bathroom, and we're going to see St. Gregory the Theologian. <coughs> okay. So you go in the church, and here is this wooden beer and in vestments, full Episcopal vestments, um, with cotton stuffed in the eye sockets is St. Gregory the Theologian. He was, he was not a tall man. But it, that's him. There. And we're like, what's he doing here in this modern church? Well, of course, he was originally from Asia Minor. Right? And when they had the forced population exchanges between the Greeks and the Muslims... So they chased all, you know, the Muslims left Greece and, and they chased all the Greeks out of Turkey. The Greeks, rather than bring their own stuff, brought the stuff from the church with them. They would leave their own things behind to make sure that all the relics and everything from the churches came to Greece. And so this is where, this was in Thrace where this church was, and this is where he had ended up. Um, and it was St. Gregory the Theologian. There. <laughs> right. Um, we went to um, the island of Agina, which is it's about half an hour hover, um, uh, hydrofoil ride from Piraeus, which is the port of Athens. Right. Um, Agina is a little desert island, um, and it's famous because it has a convent there. Um, there was a bishop who became too popular uh, because of his holiness and things like that. So they said, why don't you go to Agina? And they basically banished him to this monastery. This was, I think, the end of the 19th century, early 20th century, I mean, recently. Uh, you know, comparatively speaking. So St. Nectarius went to Agina and, and served as the priest for the nuns there. 
um, and, and is buried there. Um, and he became known for his, uh, you know, people would pray to him and intercede, ask him to intercede for them, and their, you know, miracles would occur. So we were at Agina, and we were in Vespers in this small chapel. And I kept, I noticed off to the left, there was a glass case, and it had a bishop's mitre in it, you know, an eastern bishop's mitre. But it was made entirely of silver. It's kind of strange. What is that? So after Vespers, they kind of looked around and said, are all the tourists gone? Okay, good. <clears throat> and they brought out this silver case. The silver miter. They took the glass case off. And they opened a little round door in the top of it. And it was white. And it's the skull of St. Nectarius. So you can actually venerate directly the skull of St. Nectarius. Um, that was interesting. Because I had never done that before. I mean, you know, like I said, in the United States we talk about relics. But here you can see this is his skull. I mean, it makes it... Real. Yeah, there's no, there's no avoiding this one, you know. Is this, um, but we venerate that. Why? Why? Because we are. It's not a way of remembering the dead. It's a way of communing with the living, right? So we ask Saint Nectarius for his prayers. We venerate his relics, right? We remember his holy life. And we try to emulate that ourselves. Um, so relics are our connection to those who have gone before. We used to talk about, and we don't we don't talk about this in the Orthodox Church. We used to talk about the three top parts of the church: uh, the church militant, the church expectant. And the church triumphant. Who's the church militant? The faithful. Specifically. Everybody raise your hand. Mm -hmm. We're the church militant. We're the ones still fighting. Okay. Um, the church expectant was those of the faithful who have passed on and are waiting judgment. The Orthodox Church, well one, the Orthodox Church says we don't know with, with any detail what happens after death, right? Because of this gulf between time and timelessness, right? But what we will say is that we, we believe that those who have passed on experience a foretaste of what they will be granted in the judgment. Okay. So, um, but we believe they're still with us. Right? We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Okay, what's the word witness in Greek? Martyr. Right? A martyr is somebody who has witnessed faith with their life. Right? But we're surrounded by our loved ones. We're surrounded by those who have gone before us. We don't know exactly what state they're in because our minds can't comprehend that. Right? We know that 
it's you know every second's counting down and we're getting hungry it's time to go these are our things right we're trapped in this three-dimensional reality when it goes beyond Paul St. Paul talks about now we see in the mirror darkly, but then we shall see face to face. Right? And of course, then the church triumphant are the saints who are in heaven. No. So, um, <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> so, Um, any questions about relics? Anything? Yeah, did we? Yeah, I have one question. Sure. Do we know who our relics are from? Yes. That are here? I don't. I mean, I, I, mean, I we do. We do, but you don't We do, know but I don't remember off the top of my head. There's like six of them. Okay. It's written on the back, though. Yeah, it's written on the back. Just pick it up. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I would do that. <laughs> Peter, uh, yes. we were in Rome uh, six or seven years ago. Yes. One of the days we decided to go uh, to the Vatican, and we saw that you know there was dozens of whole bodies that were glass cased. Is there anything like that in the in the Orthodox uh, monasteries or? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Except they're usually not in glass. They're like I said. Well, like Saint Gregory the Theologian, I mentioned, he was in glass. Okay. Um, Saint John Chrysostom, his arm. It was just in a silver case. And you yeah. could pop the top on it and touch. Yeah, actually touch. Tu actually touch, yeah. So what yeah. do you mean when you say venerate? Like, what is that? Okay, what's the difference between venerate and worship? Because this, this gets into icons, too, right? People say, oh, you worship pictures. You're idol worshipers. Because you've got icons. That's what, the, that's what the Muslims accuse us of. That's why they're iconoclasts. They have no, they have no pictures of Muhammad. They have no pictures of God. They have no pictures of, of anybody, right? So what's the difference between venerate and worship? I'll tell you my favorite story about that, as an illustration. Um, many years ago on Saturday Night Live, uh, the Irish musician Sinead O'Connor had a picture of John Paul II. And on stage, live, she tore it up. People were outraged. Why? Why were people outraged? Because it was dishonored. It was, it's just a piece of paper, right? But in doing so, she dishonored who's the person whose image was on it. If, you know, you gave me a, a, a picture of your family and I laughed and tore it up, You'd be upset. Why? Because not just because it's a piece of paper, because I'm dishonoring your family by doing that, right? Yeah. Okay. So when we when we venerate an icon or we venerate a relic, we're paying honor to the person whose relic it is or whose image it is. All right. But the reason we're paying honor to them is because they were Christ-like. So, really, all vener veneration is directed toward Christ. You know, we see Christ in everyone around us, and we see Christ in the icons of the saints and in the relics of the saints. So, we, it's like, you know, if um, somebody has a prized family picture, you know, 
you know, especially a dead relative. Oh, you know, and they use it to remember. That's veneration. Okay. Worship, like Tria, is entirely different. That is solely for God. Okay. We don't worship icons. We venerate icons. We don't worship icons. We venerate relics. We don't worship relics. Worship is only for God. Okay. Does that answer? Or? Okay. Yeah, it's it's like if you have you know a, a family photo. In fact, uh, Father John Winfrey, he was when he was working a job, um, he had a cubicle and he had an icon up in his cubicle, and they said um, you need to take that down. And he said, why? We only allowed family photos. He says that is a family photo. <laughs> <laughs> that is a family photo. <laughs> So, they are family photos. They are brothers and sisters in Christ. Whether it's a relic or an icon. Any other questions? Alright, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.